a lot of entrepreneurs are control freaks. So not only do we not, we're not great leaders, naturally, we want to do it. We think we can do it better than anybody else. So our inclination is to get back in the trenches and start doing the work. And we have to resist that. We have to understand that 80% of us is good enough. You don't need to find someone who's exactly like you. And I talk about this in my book. If, you're, if your concern is that the people you hire won't care as much about the company as you do, let me tell you something. They won't. They can't. It's not possible. It's like saying I'm going to hire a babysitter for my kid, but I'm worried they won't love my kid as much as I do. They won't. They can't. It's, it's your kid, but you just have to hope that they'll take care of them well enough to keep them happy and safe and they'll do 80% of the job you would do, right? Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug with the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mike Simmons. Mike is a real estate investor, podcast host, best-selling author, and a public speaker who shared the stage with one, one of my favorite idols, Gary V or Gary Vanderchuk. Mike is a co-owner of the wholesaling company, Return on Investments. He's the producer and host of the really popular podcast show called Just Real Estate, which I've had a pleasure of being on. He's a partner in Seven Figure Flipping, which is the nation's leading and largest real estate mastermind. And to top it all off, Mike owns six 16 rental properties, and he completed last year, get this, over 80 fix and flips and or wholesales in just 2019 alone. Pretty impressive stuff. Mike has recently wrote the book titled Level Jumping, how he grew his business to over a million dollars in profits in just 12 months, where he tells his stories about how to scale a business successfully. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today to share his incredible knowledge and his incredible journey. But enough of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Mike. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Hey, good day. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. 
I like sprinkling that in. I was on your show. I, I, I'm sure they know. And, uh, or you're on my show. I'm sorry. And, uh, I, I like, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to imitate that accent every once in a while. So <laughs> forgive me. Good eye. I wish I could say that and it didn't sound weird. G'day. I, I, you know, when the, first, the show first started, I actually tried to get people to give me their best Australian accent impression, but too many people were embarrassed. And so I had to, I had to cut that from the show. That's a, it's a fun thing. Those, the listeners out there are going to be listening to you going, oh, I'll we'll have to re- rewind back and listen to all those early episodes. I'd really tried it as a thing and it just failed. Uh, it fell on its it's ass fun. straight away. All right. Well, good day. I'm, I'm, I'm game. Yeah, I'm, cool. I'm your guy. Awesome. Awesome. Well, mate, before we dive into the, today's uh, you know, tidbits and you know, best best stuff we want to talk about, can you rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid? Okay. So the first ever dollar, uh, this is not, this is going to sound weird and a little bit strange, but uh, the first dollar I ever made as a little kid, I was, I was, uh, I, it was like third grade, I believe. And uh, my next door neighbor used to pay me $5 a day to clean up dog droppings. <laughs> like that was literally my first entrepreneurial gig as a kid is picking up her dog droppings and uh, getting paid five dollars every time i did it so that was my first uh first earned dollar oh i still pick up my dogs today and it's it's disgusting love the thing and my wife's like get out and walk the dog i don't want to walk the dog you have to walk the dog all right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so now i got paid for it so maybe i've gotten dumber because i do it for free now again my, oh, you know, i know I know, I know. Yeah. Well, mate, walk us through the journey of of your background, and obviously, you know, you're very successful today. Um, but you you have a lot of years of experience of building businesses. But it, I'm sure you just didn't fall into that. So maybe rewind it and give us a little bit of detail in and around the journey. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you know, you talked about the book, um, how I built my company to over a million dollars in one year. That was like a, a seven year overnight success, as they mm-hmm. say. Uh, and honestly, just getting started in real estate, getting started as an entrepreneur, I didn't do until I was in my mid to late thirties. So I spent my early part of my life working for companies. My first job was at UPS. I was loading trucks and by 24, I had ruined my back to the point that I couldn't get out of bed every day unless I went to the chiropractor three times a week. It took that amount of work on my back just to get me out of bed. And I was 24 years old. It's very, you know, and I, I looked around and said, I can't retire from here. I can barely get up in the mornings. Like there's no way I can do this until I retire. So I left there. I'm in Michigan. That's where I live. And I went into the automotive industry, which is what most people do in Michigan. So I went to the automotive industry, work in there for a while. And, you know, sort of unsatisfied. I didn't feel like I had a lot of job security at the time because I had started working for UPS right out of the gate after high school, I didn't have a degree. I, I figured when I got my job at UPS, like I'm set. It's mm. a union job and it's a great company and I'll, I'll be set for life. So I didn't get my degree. And then when I got out of UPS and went back to work uh, for the automotive industry, I realized, boy, I am very unmarketable. If I ever lose my job, like, I don't know if I would hire me. Why would I hire me? I have no, no education and very little experience. So I went back to college as an adult with kids, two, two kids and a full-time job and a house and a wife. I went back to work and got my degree and worked my butt off and got my degree, finally got my degree. And I thought, this is it. I've, I've sort of supercharged my career. And immediately upon getting my degree, I quit my job and got a better job. I doubled my income and I'm like, this is it. I'm, I'm on the corporate ladder. I, this is all I ever wanted out of life. And I started going down that corporate route and the people whose job that I was trying to eventually get like the people who I said, that's, that's the job I want in this company. As I got to know them better and work with them, they were miserable. They hated their job and they hated their life. They hated their wife. They hated their husband, hated their kids. Like 
it was all negative. And I could see that they were just like under so much stress and they were so unhappy that I thought, this is what I'm trying to work. Like, this is what I'm aspiring to do is have that job of that person who hates everything about their job. And so I started getting a little bit, honestly, kind of desperate. Like, not that I needed to do anything because I had a good paying job and I, I, I had a, a good career, but I started getting desperate from the standpoint of, boy, I got 20 more years of this. Like, what am I going to do? This doesn't seem like a good 20 years I'm about to embark on. So I started looking at how I could start making my money and those savings that I had work for me. How can I invest my money? And my first thought was the stock market. Like I should, I should get into day trading. I should, I should get savvy with the stock market. And as I researched that path and started looking at how to invest in stocks, the stock market, I realized I don't like this either. Like this isn't making me happy. I can't even stay focused. It's so boring. But as I was investigating investment vehicles and and Googling how to invest for retirement, I hit real estate. Finally, I hit something that I really truly was interested in and it kept my interest and learning about it wasn't a chore like the stock market was. So I started learning and learning and that was in 2003. I didn't buy my first house until 2008. Why didn't I buy my first house till 2008, you ask? I'll tell you why. I did what a lot of people do. And I suspect that people listening to this podcast, some people are doing it right now and they need to be sort of shaken out of this. I told myself that I was being diligent and I was being prudent and I was educating myself and I was making sure that I knew what I was doing before I jumped into it. And that is valid for a while, but it comes a point where you're procrastinating. You're afraid, you're putting it off. You're afraid of what people think. You're afraid of failure. You're afraid of success. You're afraid of losing money. You're afraid, you're afraid, you're afraid. And it, what eventually occurred to me was, I can't use, after five years, I can't use the excuse that I'm educating myself. What am I, a doctor? I'm trying to educate <laughs> myself, but really all I'm doing is putting off getting started because if I don't get started, I haven't failed, right? And I think a lot of people kind of do this either consciously or subconsciously, they don't do the things they know they need to do to move forward and become successful and whatever success means to you. Because if you don't start, you don't fail. And there's no fear in not starting. And so I was raised, just to kind of rewind a little bit, my dad was a, a Marine. He was in Vietnam and he was a very stereotypical Marine from that era. And uh, he was tough on us. And, and what he didn't tolerate was unrational or irrational fear. He just didn't, right? When I was a little kid, I was afraid of playing baseball. He wanted me to play baseball and I kind of wanted to play baseball, but my brother who was also going to play was a year older than me. And he was in a, in a, in like a league a little bit above where I should have been for my age. But because he didn't want to have to go to two different practices and two different games, he said, you're going to go up, up a level and you're going to be on that team. And I was scared to death and I didn't want to do it, but he just, he just doesn't let, he doesn't let irrational fear get you. So what I realized was after these five years of procrastinating was I was just afraid. And it was a very uncomfortable, ugly feeling because I don't live my life as a, someone who's typically afraid, but I was making excuses and I was, I was telling myself that I was being responsible by trying to learn as much as I can, but I had learned plenty to get started. So once I kind of got really disgusted with myself and how much I was putting it off, what I really wanted to do, I dove in and started making offers. And almost right away, I got a property under contract and I eventually flipped it and I, I made tons of mistakes, but at the end of the day, this is 2008 now, right? And I'm in Michigan, not, I'm not in California or one of these markets where prices are really, really high. So the house I bought, it was a $40,000 purchase price and I spent $15,000 on rehab and I made $15,000. Like, 
not bad, not a bad return for that kind of investment. Right. And like I said, I made tons of mistakes. I probably should have made closer to $20,000, but you know, I screwed up a couple of, a couple of things and it was lessons learned, but I made $15,000 and it was, it was proof, proof of concept for me. And I, by the way, for everyone listening, the whole five years that I was educating myself, that first deal, I learned way more than I had learned for the last five years because I actually did it, right? right. So we, like you can read a book about swimming, but until you get in the pool and start swimming, you just don't know what it feels like to be wet. And I finally felt what it was like to swim and get wet in and, and that first deal. And by the way, you know, I, I don't, can't remember if we had this conversation when you were on my show, but I, I'm really interested in whether or not entrepreneurs are born entrepreneurs or whether or not they become an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. It, it's an interesting question. And I think for me, the answer was I was a born entrepreneur, but I was sort of like, I was a born piano prodigy, but I had never been shown a piano before. Mm-hmm. So when I did that first deal, I realized, oh my goodness, all of these career paths that I had went down and all these things I tried that made me unhappy and I didn't want to do, it's because I'm an entrepreneur. And when I did that first deal, I was like a light went off in my head and a fire got ignited inside of me. And I'm like, this is what I want to do. And I, I went for it. And you know, as far as that getting to a million dollars in a year, it took me about six or seven years to do that because I spent six or seven years making every mistake, doing everything wrong, taking, you know, one step forward, just to take two steps back. And so there was a lot of that like growth in, in growing pains that went on for, for like six years or so before I kind of figured things out a little bit and got, you know, we can talk about it, but the bottom line is I surrounded myself with better people. I was surrounding myself with naysayers and people who also had limited beliefs and limited mindsets and kind of very, very small like views of what was possible. When I started surrounding myself with people who had much bigger businesses than me, who had done much more than I had, and they expected more from themselves right. and the people around them, my, my world absolutely exploded. And that, that made all the difference for me. And, and I resisted it for a while because my mindset was, I don't need help. I don't need to surround myself with successful people. Like, you know what? If I have a question, I'll Google it. Right. That's it, right? Ignorance, right? <laughs> yeah, just total ignorance and like really like limited mindset. Like I just thought, I'll figure everything out. I don't need any help. But listen, man, I, I don't care what, if it use a sports analogy, use your favorite sports star, like they have a coach and they have a coach for a reason and the coach right. makes them better and they surround themselves with people, by the way, who are counting on them, expect a lot from them and help them raise their game. And I think that nothing's different in business. It's just people don't apply that same philosophy. Well, firstly, I want to rewind back and just say kudos to you, man, for going back to uni uh, with two kids and you know, not even starting your entrepreneurial path until you're in your, you said mid to late 30s. So all those people sitting out there at 26, 27, 28, even 30 years of age think it's too late. It's not too late. Like I think you're a prime example of someone who's can, can like an old dog, you can trick an old, teach an old dog new tricks. You know, like you, you, you are constantly trying to push your boundaries. And, and I think it's really, really, um, you know, admirable that you went back and achieved what you achieved. What did you actually go back and study when you went back to uni? Uh, I, it was, I was getting my uh, degree in business, business, business administration. B- B- yep. MBA. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yep. Cool. MBA. Yep. And, and then I guess it sounded me, if in, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was a lot of fear initially of trying to get over that first, what if, you know, the, the barrier of something's going to fail and I can't live with that failure today. And it took you five years or longer to, to really take that, that leap of faith. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that that's, I, I know we're talking about a bit in the green room. That's what you're really passionate about getting off your ass and actually doing something, right? Yeah, I, I do. I, I have empathy for people 
who are struggling to get started, but I don't have tolerance for it because I get it. I was there, but I know what I did not need at that time was someone empathizing with me. I needed someone to hold up a mirror and say, is this who you want to be? The scared little person. And that's what it is. So for me, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you a quick story that'll really articulate how afraid I was. I think my biggest fear wasn't losing money. It it was, my fear was of failing and looking stupid to my Mm -hmm. friends and family, honestly. And I don't think that makes me unique. I think that's a lot of people. But here's, here's, a, here's a little, I'll make it quick, a story to illustrate that. My wife and I started flipping houses in 08. We, we were a team and we worked on it together at the time. And we decided because our friends and family, there are no entrepreneurs on the horizon when I was growing up. Like none of my friends, none of my family, nobody I associated with, nobody was an entrepreneur. And if you remember back in 2008, for most people, that was a really bad time for real estate in, in, in the way that the, the media was covering it. The media was screaming, real estate prices are dropping, run to the hills, it's all horrible. So for me to tell my friends and family, I'm going to start investing in real estate, it's like if the stock market crashes, everyone goes, oh, don't invest. But that's the time to invest, frankly. Right. So we started doing, we started flipping houses and we were, we were getting a little bit of traction. We were doing some good stuff. And I got some really good advice early on from some people in like a local RIA. And one of the pieces of advice I got was you should, at the time it was called a Facebook business page, right? But <laughs> you should start a Facebook business page and just document your journey. Put up videos about before and after videos of houses and what you're doing and just, just kind of be transparent, which is kind of a Gary Vee thing, right? Back in 2008, like just document. Don't worry about creating this great stuff, just document. And we did. And by doing that, um, and by the way, we didn't do it in our personal names. We did it in a business name. So nobody would necessarily find us, but the, the local newspaper. And when I say local, the biggest newspaper in Michigan, the Detroit um, free press and evening news reached out to me and said, Hey, we're doing this article on local house flippers. We'd like to come and interview you. Is it okay? If, would you be interested? I'm like, sure. And I, I know how this works, right? They come and interview me. It may or may not show up. And if it does show up, it's on page, like the back page of some section, no one's ever going to read. But we were doing like, you know, we were doing like four or five, six houses a year. We were kind of moving along a little bit. So this article comes out. I didn't even realize it came out. It was a Sunday edition of the paper, by the way, the most read newspaper, you know, the most read day of the week. I was at my parents' house and we get a phone call. My mom gets a phone call and I hear her go, what? They're in the newspaper for what? And I'm like, oh no, it came out. I forgot all about that. We were front page, full color article of my wife and I on the front page. It was, um, it was huge article, ridiculously large. And that's how my friends and family and coworkers all found out that I was doing real estate. Like that was how we got out. And we were so afraid of people knowing we were already kind of becoming a little bit successful and, and making money. And we were kind of doing a really good job, but we didn't even realize it until that thing came out. And everyone's like, you never told us, did you just start? And we're like, no, we've been doing it for two years wow. and we've already flipped like 15 houses or, you know, I was like, it was crazy the way it came out. We didn't even tell our kids, by the way. And our kids at the time, uh, this is 2010, our kids were like, you know, between seven and 13. Like they were old enough to know what we were doing, but we were almost like cheating on our kids. Like we would go out and go, Hey, we're going to run to the store. We go look at a house. Like we were, right. we weren't telling anybody. Wow. Well, first of all, kids aren't good secret kids keepers anyways. Right. You can't tell a 10 year old something and expect them not to tell anybody else. So we like kept it all a big secret until we were in the paper. And that's how everyone found out. Like that's how afraid we were. Crippling. And it's crippling. And it was, it was, it was counterproductive because yeah. what I've since realized was, you know, you start telling people what you're doing and just like 
share it. Like people will come out of the woodwork who want to be involved. They want to help. Maybe they want to help anyone to invest or they want to loan money. Like there's a lot of advantages to being kind of a little more out in the open about what you're doing, but we were mm. so afraid. In the beginning, we were afraid because we thought if someone tells us we're stupid or we're making a mistake, it might keep us, us from pushing forward, right? Right, right? So we needed to get some momentum before we had people telling us how stupid we were. Or we needed to be able to show them we weren't stupid. And we just sort of forgot to tell people. We just kept, we had this system of how we were doing it and we just like had this weird secret and that's how it came out. That's so funny. It was. It's not funny. It's, it is sounds like it was crippling for you because do not even tell your kids and I don't even know how you get around the issue when you're talking to your parents or how are things going, you know, like um, it's, it sounds so counterintuitive, but I would imagine as soon as you, the, the, the shackles were taken off that it, things would have just felt so freeing, right? People would have yeah. just been so much more supportive and, and probably patting you on the back more so than what you were afraid of, which is only in your own mind, right? hundred percent. It was in our heads. Nobody would have done anything. And they might've said, Hey, that sounds, Ooh, that's scary. I don't know. How, but nobody would have said you're stupid. Like the, nobody would have mm. deterred us. It was in all in our head, totally in our head. And honestly, by keeping it a secret like that, we had to do a little bit of damage control because my wife and I have some really close friends that we didn't tell. And they're like, they weren't mad, but they were like, I can't believe you didn't tell me. Why would you not tell me? It's like, I thought we were good friends, you know? Right. And it's like, so we had to do some damage control, but it was all good in the end. I mean, right. everyone understood, you know, as much as you can and they laugh about it. But I'll tell you what, <clears throat> my parents, so that was like in 2010. I started in 2008. I didn't quit my full-time job until 2012, I think. And by then I had really, we had really had some serious success. And I took my parents out for dinner, I remember still. And at the time, uh, 2012, I was like 42. And I took my parents out and I said, listen, mom and dad, this is what I'm doing. And they knew I had a really good paying job. And I said, this is, this is what I'm doing, I'm quitting my job. And my dad's reaction was, you're making a mistake. Like that was his, he's, he can't, he just, you know, he's a, he worked at Ford. He was a tool and die guy, like just union factory, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, kind of a mentality. He just could not conceive of not having that security. Right. And, and actually after I left my job, there was huge layoffs. Like I, I might've lost my job after I, but right shortly after I decided to quit anyway. So anyways, point being, everyone would have been fine, but sometimes parents are just, they're just parents. They, they want what's best for you and they think they're protecting you. And, and if that's the case, you have to do what you're going to do. You can't live your parents' life. Like they, you know, they, they're living their life. You got to live your life and all the fears that you have and every, every fear I had about flipping houses and getting involved completely unwarranted, like completely. And yeah. I, I wish I would have known that five years earlier. Well, as I say, hindsight 2020, right? They just totally. you, look, you look back and you think, what if all this sort of changed? But I think that's a great segue into what you're doing today because a lot has changed since then. You've built this incredible business. So what does today look like in, in your a day in your life right now? Yeah, so a day in my life now, I, I, I don't flip houses exclusively anymore. I do quite a bit of wholesaling as well. And I have a, a little uh, rental portfolio that I, I'm just kind of growing it organically. I'm not really aggressively growing that. Matter of fact, I've sort of stopped I've put the brakes on that because I believe we're about to come into a, a time that will be similar to 2008, 2009, totally different reasons, but I think we're going to see a little bit of a correction and there'll be some house prices that'll drop. So I'm actually kind of, I'm, I'm sort of hoarding cash right now, actually to, to get in position to be able to buy up as many properties as possible in the next 12 to 18 months. But my business nowadays, like 
early on, I ran around, did everything. Like I had no systems early in the early days. I, I bought everything. I was at Home Depot all the time. I was running around to sites. Now I have a team, you know, I'm doing a lot of wholesaling and doing some flipping. So I've got a marketing team. I have a phone team that answers calls. A lot of my marketing generates calls. So the inbound calls go to a live uh, person who works for me. I have a sales team. I have folks go out and talk to homeowners who are in some sort of distress or in a situation where they need to sell their house maybe for cash for various reasons. And, uh, and then we have something called dispositions. And it's a, a gentleman in my company who takes the purchase agreements that we get from the homeowners, from the sellers, and markets that, that purchase agreement out to a, a list of, of buyers that I have, uh, local buyers who are looking for houses to either flip or buy as a landlord. And then I have a transaction team who works with title companies and a bookkeeper who keeps it all straight. Because I realized one thing about us entrepreneurs, most of us, uh, we are not detail people. We're not good at details. And if I don't have a bookkeeper, I won't know what's going on. So my bookkeeper gives me a P&L and a balance sheet and they make sure that um, everything is accounted for. Because I'm really good about spending money, using credit cards, shifting money from accounts to accounts, and I don't keep track of anything. So I'll, if, I move, if I move $1 from one account to another, and I don't tell my bookkeeper, I'll get a text within a half an hour saying, what was that $1 for? So that's, to me, that's, that's the most beautiful text. And she's always like, I'm sorry to bother you. I hate to be, a, I hate to nag. And I'm like, no, like, you don't know how happy I get when, when you're like a goalie, like nothing gets past you. If I spend a dollar and I don't tell you what it is, you're asking me what it is. I love that. I need that. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a bookkeeper and you're kind of growing your business, you're doing yourself a disservice unless you are a bookkeeper by trade or you just love, love, love tracking numbers. Uh, you need a bookkeeper. It's definitely 100%. a cr critical member. So to talk to me about how you've scaled the business, because you've written a whole book on about it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what you're really passionate about today, teaching others about how you scale. So yeah. do you want to start there? Because I know even in myself, I mean, with my business, I mentioned earlier, when you start operating at certain levels, you you bring in people and, and I've scaled my business as well. But there also comes a time where you, you, you bring on that extra person then you start flying higher or flying faster. Yep. And then all of a yep. sudden you're like, oh, like I, I just, I just go back from my week in Texas where all my properties are. And I, you know, I'm, we're, we're looking to hire a couple of uh, underwriters, but I, you know, it's quarterly reports due this week. It's, you know, a, a lot of other things. We're looking at new deals. We've got new investment partners coming on, like looking yep. at the P&L balance sheets, all that sort of stuff. It feels very overwhelming at times where you're just like, yeah. even when you have growing a business, so you, there's never not a time where you've got to take an opportunity to pause and say, what am I doing right and what I'm doing wrong? I think, you know, it's great to get started scaling, but there's also, you, you can't not stop. You, you can't not stop stopping to then say, hey, what, what's happening now? Why do I feel burnt out today? Because I've grown this business to, to, such, to such an extent. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and like flipping, I made so many mistakes when I started scaling my business because I was all horsepower and, and I really didn't understand how to scale or how to lead people. So one of the biggest problem I think people have, I, if I could point to the number one thing that is the reason why people fail when they try to scale their business, it's because listen, all of us start this business as a solopreneur, right? Very few of us start with a team in place and this big engine that's just running, right? So we start as a solopreneur, we start off by ourselves, And what do we do? We get really good at finding deals. We get really good at locking up contracts. We get really good at, let's just say, depending on what you're doing, on hiring and managing contractors and operations. renovation operations. You get really, really good at all that stuff. And sometimes you get good because you just spend a lot of time figuring it out. Sometimes you get help, you get mentors or whatever it is, right? But you spend a lot of time getting good at that. And then the skill that you need to scale your business 
is none of those skills. You need the skill of hiring, training, uh, motivating, and inspiring those people who are now doing those things. So it's like the example that I, I've given in the past, I was in the automotive industry, worked in the automotive industry for a number of years. And I saw these automotive companies make the exact same mistake over and over again. What they'll do is they'll go into a department like the engineering department and they'll, they'll take the most talented engineer and they'll, they'll pluck him or her out and go, we're going to make you the engineering manager as a reward for being the best engineer we have. And a lot of times that fails because that engineer is a really good engineer. They're not a good manager. They're not a good leader. They don't have the skill set for that. They're, they have the skill set to actually do the work. And we become good at quote, doing the work. We become operators within our company. And then we think that that transition from just being an operator to like being a leader is going to be easy and seamless, but it's not. It's a totally different thing to hire, train, and motivate people to do the job that you used to do yourself. And in fact, a lot of entrepreneurs are control freaks. So not only do we not, we're not great leaders naturally, we want to do it. We think we can do it right. better than anybody else. So our inclination is to get back in the trenches and start doing the work. And we have to resist that. We have to understand that 80% of us is good enough. You mm -hmm. don't need to find someone who's exactly like you. And I talk about this in my book. If, you're, if your concern is that the people you hire won't care as much about the company as you do, let me tell you something. They won't. They can't. It's not possible. It's like saying I'm going to hire a babysitter for my kid, but I'm worried they won't love my kid as much as I do. They won't. They can't. It's, it's your kid, but you yeah. just have to hope that they'll take care of them well enough to keep them happy and safe and they'll That's do 80% of the job you would do, right? right? So your company is the same. Nobody will love it like you do. They're not incentivized the same way, frankly. If I start a company and it becomes a $50 million company, the people who work for me are not incentivized like I am. So mm. don't expect that from them. So you have to spend the same amount of time and energy and maybe even money gaining the skills to be a good leader. And I wasn't concerned with being a good leader. Here's how I ran my team early on when I started scaling and hiring. I would say to them metaphorically, this will be an American football reference. So hopefully <laughs> I'm going to keep you with me. But I would say to them, listen, we're on the five yard line. If you look 95 yards away is the goal line, right? I need you to get to that goal line and I don't care how you do it. Just get there as fast as you can and don't tell me the details, just do it, right? That's terrible. Like no coach does that. There are plays. There's a, there is a, you know, a plan of action to get there. So that's your process. And that's the one thing that I can say, one of the three things that I want to talk about, about scaling that people don't think about. When you're a solopreneur, a solo operator, whatever you want to call it, you know how you do what you do in your business. And for a lot of us, it's in our head. We're not writing it down so that we can have a manual to follow. We don't need it. It's all up here, right? So we just do it. We just do it. We get really good at it. But when you start bringing people onto your team, you can't just go, well, just go find properties and get them under contract. Like they need to know how to do that. They need some kind of direction. What's the process? What is our system for doing that? So before you start hiring, you need to start jotting down your system. Now, Here's what I did when I started writing down my processes and systems. I thought I needed a full-blown manual, like a thick manual with video and all these things. And so I started creating this book that I'm not detailed. I just said that most entrepreneurs aren't. So I put it off. I procrastinated and do it. And I could never get this manual together. And if I did put together a, a, a section of it, I would be so detailed that by the time I finished it, 
it was kind of outdated because it's a growing company. I wasn't following that procedure the same way as I was six months ago when I started it. So what I tell people is, if you don't have a procedure and you don't have your systems documented, start documenting them and just do it almost like bullet point. Like we call it like a flight checklist, like a, you know, someone who's going to like do a checklist to check a plane before it takes off. They don't have like paragraphs and like 500 pages they have to read. It's a checklist. So create checklists for your company. So when you bring people in, you can say, here's a checklist. Here's what your job entails. Boom, 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 boom. And then as they get acclimated and start working, they can help you fill out the details of that process, right? So you just need to create a checklist for your people. So number one for me, I had no system and no process that was documented. So when I brought people in, they didn't know what to do and they were failing and I was blaming it on them when I wasn't giving them the tools to succeed. So that's number one. Number two, I didn't know my numbers. When I started trying to scale my business, I knew money was coming in. I knew money was going out. I had no clue if I was making money or losing money. I just knew there was some flow, but I didn't know for sure because it was before I had a bookkeeper. The only night in my life, and listen, I'm, I'm 50 now, right? So <laughs> hopefully that doesn't like turn everyone down off like this guy's old. I don't want to listen to him. But I've never suffered a sleepless night in my life. I'm one of those lucky people that I sleep like a baby through good times and bad. I've, I've been through a lot and, and I've never lost sleep. Only one time in my life that I lost sleep, one time. It was uh, about five years into my, my business. And my CPA called me with a very, very reasonable question. He said, Mike, last year, how many houses did you take title to did you actually take possession of, even if it was for five minutes, like you do a double closing. I just need to know how many you took possession of no matter how long it was. And I had no idea. And worse, I had no system or process that would tell me how I, how I could figure this out. So I'm calling title companies going, can you tell me how many properties I took? Like it was crazy. Right? So I know your numbers, know how much money you're spending on market here. Listen, here's some high level numbers. If you're like, I don't know, numbers to track. You need more than this, but let me just give you this as a starting point. If you're, whether you're a house flipper or wholesaler, it doesn't matter, landlord, if you're doing any sort of lead generation that you spend money for, you need to know how much money you're spending on that. How many calls or form fills or inquiries do, do you get from that marketing effort, right? So how much money am I spending? How many calls or inquiries am I getting? How many appointments am I setting? How many contracts am I getting? And how much money do I make per contract, right? That is the most basic, like I call them island numbers. If I'm on a, on a desert or a secluded island and no one's there and someone's going to give me the numbers I need to know how my business is doing, those are the numbers I need mostly, right? Because if I know how much money I'm spending to generate in a call, to generate an appointment, to get a contract, and then what are my contracts worth? I can reverse engineer that, okay? If I know that and I know my average contract is $100,000, just to use good, easy round math, and and I'm doing X amount of marketing, but I want to get to a million, I need to 10X my marketing, right? And then theoretically, I'm going to get to a million dollars. So knowing that, but if I don't know any of the numbers and someone says, hey, let's, let's build this thing to a million dollars, I don't even know what to do because I don't know what's working, what's not. And for marketing, you're probably going to have different channels. So I need to know is direct mail, how much money is that making for me? How, what's my ROI on direct mail, right? What's my ROI on PPC? What's my ROI on, you know, bandit signs or whatever you're doing in your business? Like you need to know your numbers. That's number two. Number three, and this was probably the most difficult thing uh, for me to, to wrap my mind around. And I touched on it in number one, where I said processes and systems, it was hiring. I really thought that I was too small to hire. My business was too small, not physically too small. I was, my business was too small to hire, but 
I knew that I couldn't become the business I wanted to be on my own. And I knew to get to the business I want to be, I had to hire, but I'm too small to hire, but I can't get big unless I hire. And you can see it's like this circular logic that sort of is self-defeating. So what I learned was I need to start building a team sooner rather than later. For most people, if you're listening to this and going, yeah, I've been thinking for about six months, I maybe need to start hiring. Chances are you should have started six months ago or maybe even a year ago. You're probably really, really late. But the, the reality is I thought I needed to have all this cash flow and all this reserves to hire people. But the fact of the matter is the first person I hired was a salesperson. Why did I hire a salesperson first? Let me tell you. Because I know that the most important thing to hire for when you're trying to decide where to start, pick the task that you are the worst at, that you suck at, and focus on that. Because if you're bad at it, chances are you're procrastinating. Chances are you're a little bit of a bottleneck and that's where your company is suffering and that's where you should start. So for me, it was sales. When I would get a call from my marketing, here's what I would do. I would see the call come in. It came through a separate line that I got. It was a, it was a Google number I had. It came through a separate line. I would see it and I would go, oh, I don't want to answer this. I don't feel like talking to this person. And I would watch it until it went to voicemail and I'd go, good, went to voicemail. And so Problem number one, I let a call go to voicemail. You should not do that. When you're spending money on marketing and a call comes in, that person wants to talk to somebody because they called, don't let it go to voicemail. Number two, I wouldn't return the voicemail right away. I would wait a day or two before I returned it because I didn't like, I didn't like that sales process. So then I would return the call and I'd go on the appointment and sometimes I'd get a contract, sometimes I wouldn't. I hired a sales guy. He was answering calls for me. So now I don't care how much marketing I'm doing because I'm not answering the calls anyways. As somebody who likes doing it's doing it. He's answering calls. He was going on appointments for me. Okay. If I were to get five appointments set for me, or if I were to set five appointments for myself, on average, I would get one contract. That was sort of my, my number, right? right? When I hired a sales guy, he would go on five appointments. He would get two to three contracts. That was his average. 2.5 contracts was his average, right? Now in real estate, our contracts and our deals, like we're not talking, you know, 50 cents. We're not building widgets here, right? Our, our margins are like 10, 20, 30, $50,000. So imagine if I'm missing out on two to four deals a month, like that's big money that I was leaving on the table. So having him absolutely paid for himself, but let me rewind. How did I afford to hire a, by the way, this guy who was, who I hired in sales, he he was formerly a, a pharmaceutical salesperson, no real estate experience, but he was the regional top salesperson for his pharmaceutical company. Okay. He was making over six figures when he was working for them and they were sending him to Hawaii. As I hired him, they were sending him to Hawaii because he was their top salesperson. They, he was literally getting awards from this company for being so great. Now, how did I hire such a rock star salesperson? Here's how I did it. He was, an, he was an on the road salesperson, but it was a local route, right? So he visited all the doctors in our, in, in our, in our like tri-county area. So it was on the road sales and he was so good at what he did that he had a lot of downtime. He just had time during his day and he reached out to me actually. And he's like, hey, I wanna work for you. I wanna learn real estate. I have tons of downtime. I'll take the calls. I'll go on the appointments and you don't even have to pay me, okay? Now I could have taken that deal, but I didn't. I said, here's the thing you seem to be really good. Let's do this. Instead of me not paying you, I'll pay you commission. We, I close on a deal and I, I monetize it, right? Like you get the contract and we close and we make money. I'll pay you a commission off of that sale. So I never paid him unless he literally put money in my bank account. And that's how I started my hiring process. Now, how much money does it take to do that? Zero. 
I didn't have to pay him until I got paid, right? So that's how I started. And, and you can be creative. You don't need to hire a bunch of W-2 employees that have these base salaries and you bury your business because you, you don't want to bury your business when you're scaling. But there's plenty of people out there. There's VAs. You can hire VAs. Like there's a lot of ways that you can hire folks very inexpensively or pure commission where they only make money when you make money. And by the way, he didn't quit his job right away. He worked for me for eight months wow. before he quit his job and started working for me full time. He was just really good. He could do both with no problem. It was only when my company started scaling up that he had to make a choice. So that's how I did it when I started. So hiring people was a huge hurdle for me. You need to start building your team. Okay. But don't think that means money out of pocket every month necessarily. You need to track your numbers and understand your numbers and you need to create a system, your systems and processes. You need to document that as bad as it might be. Cause you might even be saying, I don't have a system. I don't have processes. Yeah, you do. They're just really bad because you haven't even thought about them to know that you have a process. When you get a contract, like what do you do first? What do you do second? Just start yep. writing it down. You can improve yep. it as you go, but you need something to help people that you bring on to understand how to work. One thing I'll add in there is when you are documenting uh, processes, I use a thing called Loom, L-O-O-M. It's a video, uh, screen share. It can take a picture of your face as well, but shares your screen. I do it particularly around, um, actually in COVID, starting in COVID, I had a bit more time on my hands. I actually started documenting the ways in which I underwrite deals so I can now pass it off to a full-time underwriter. And it was like, three hours of video, right? It's like, have you watched those three, those seven, those seven tutorials that I've done? You know, <laughs> but yeah. they're easy ways of doing it. And that can document, that's all you have to do. Like, I'm not a writing type of guy. I'm like, here's a video. I just created it. Look at it. Thanks. Same. You know, same. Boom. just, I do the same thing, man. It's all yeah. video for me. I don't write anything because people know, even on my phone, if I text you, I have spoken the text in and let it do voice to text. I hate, I hate typing. I hate texting with a passion. So I, I, I voice everything. You're right. So I do videos. That's exactly how I create. I don't do it as much in my company now, but when I do have to do a video to explain something, I mean, uh, when I do have to create a system, it's always video. So how, how, do, you, how do you learn to, to fire yourself? Because I think that's a bit, another big mental hurdle a lot of people face, including myself, when you've got to learn to, to, that someone else can do your job better. Because some, you, know, you mentioned before, you, you the babysitter analogy. Well, they're not going to love your kid like you love them. Of course they're not. But how do you make sure that you're still got the trains on the tracks and you're still moving forward with the right people behind the wheel and you might be back in first class and you're kicking back and, and relaxing so, a little bit more? There's two questions in there. How do I know that they're performing and the wheels right. aren't falling off yes. versus how do I let go, right? It's two different things. So I'll attack the first one first because it's easier how do I know it's all working is so when I said track your numbers and I said, know how much money you're spending on marketing, know how many calls you're generating, how many appointments, contracts and all that, right? Those are, those are like lag indicators. I call them, those are, those are things that tell you whether or not you did a good job last week or last month. But we also track activity metrics. Okay. Activity metrics could be like, let's just say for my sales team, how many cold calls did you make? How many appointments did you go on? Because if I track and if I measure activity in my company, activity leads to results. It just does, right? You don't necessarily know right off the bat how much activity leads to how much results, but all you need is some data points behind you to know. Like we made a hundred cold calls this month and we got one deal, right? The second month we made a hundred cold calls. We got one deal. What if we make 200 cold calls? Should we get two deals? I would think so, right? And then as you go every month, your metrics and your numbers get smarter and smarter and smarter because you have more data points. So to answer your question a little more clearly, we track activity. Everybody in my company 
has what we, one number, where they have one number they're responsible for on a weekly basis, right? They're, they're responsible for more numbers, but in our meet, in our weekly meeting with the team, we report one number and you can call it the North star number. You can call it the met, the one thing, but we, we follow a book called traction by Gino Wickman. It's how we run our business. It's basically, it's a very simple model that's laid out in this book of how to run an organization. And within traction, they talk about everybody on your team has numbers they're responsible for. And there's more than one, but there's only one that they report every week. And the idea behind that is if everything goes off the rails, if they start losing focus, if they're getting distracted, they don't really like sometimes your employees just don't know what to do first. They don't know what's important. That number that they have to report on Monday morning or whenever you do your team meeting, that is their guiding light. As long as they know what they have to do to hit that number, then everything can be going crazy and it still gives them some focus. So everyone reports one number and it's always an activity number. It's not a, it's not a lag indicator. I don't necessarily want to know what we did that was successful. I want to know what you did that's going to help me know at the end of the month, at the end of the quarter, at the end of the year that we're going to hit our numbers. So I say create a, a, an activity metric or metrics that you expect your team to follow. That's how we do it. But, okay. but as far as how to let go, that's a mindset thing, man. That's right. hard. I can't give you a spreadsheet or a tool. You have to do it. Now, one thing that I have going for me, and I have a lot of things not going for me. I'm just an average person with all kinds of you know drawbacks, and I'm not perfect. But one thing I do have that aids me a lot in this endeavor is I'm very quick to let go, especially when I don't enjoy what it, what it is I'm letting go of. So like my bookkeeper was blown away how quickly I let her into QuickBooks and gave her access to my accounts. Like I, I, I like letting go of things because I know I'm an ideal person. I'm, I'm a visionary. I'm not a good like COO. I'm not an operations person at heart. I do it if I have to, but if I'm the one who's like creating systems and processes and holding people accountable to them and managing people, eventually the wheels will fall off because right. I get bored doing that. I like building. I like looking out at the horizon and deciding where the next strategic move is. I, I like that. I, I don't like managing people on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm very quick to give that stuff away. And at times it's bitten me. I've given it away to people who weren't really great. And, and I had to take a step back to take another step forward. It's part of the, it's part of the deal, right? When you start hiring people, like if you're afraid of hiring because you don't ever want to have to fire, get over it. You're going to have to fire. If you start hiring, you will eventually have to fire. So it, it's just part of it. But you know, there's a way to do that too. There's a way to do it where it's a little bit more uh, respectful and reasonable. You don't drag, you don't string people. Cause usually if you know someone isn't a good fit, the longer you hold on to them, the more of a disservice you're doing to them. You need to end it so they can go find something that they're a better fit for. And you need to end it for everyone else on your team who's probably suffering as a result of having this person in the team. You got it. You got to let them go. And it's, right. if you do it the right way, it's, it's, you know, everyone can be fine. Awesome. Well, I, I love what you said there about the whole, when you think about something, I remember having to fire a property manager at one point. I was asking, you know, we had a big, we've got a big portfolio and someone said to me, as soon as you thought about it, it's too late. And it's what you said earlier. It's like, as soon as you're thinking about employing someone, it's probably too late. You probably should have already started. As soon as you're thinking about firing that person, it's probably too late. You know what I mean? So yeah. all those things, it's learning to trust your gut, learning to trust your intuition, your sixth sense, whatever, your, your spidey sense, um, to make sure that you, you're, you're making the right decisions for your business. Um, Mike, look, I want to be very respectful of your time. We're coming to the end of the show. Before we dive into the top five investing tips, the lightning round. One last question. What does 2020 have installed for you now? You know, been a, been a bit of a weird year, but, but what do you got going on um, that you're looking forward to? Yeah, that's a good question. So for my, for my main real estate company, 
we, you know, we're kind of in, in where I'm at, we got hit by COVID pretty hard, a lot of restrictions. So we're kind of coming out of that now. I, you know, direct mail was a big uh, workhorse for me over the last five years. And it took a little bit of a hit. The beginning of the year, we just weren't getting the results. We're starting to get those results again. So I like the rebound effect. I'm probably not going to do as many deals this year as I did last year, but I'm totally mm-hmm. fine with that because what this year did do for me is it made me leaner and it made my company really more profitable, honestly, because we, we, we scaled back in some places and we got more efficient. So that was a good thing. I'm excited about that. Um, we, I have an event, the seven figure flipping group that I'm a part of, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we have a big event that's coming up this week. So people listening at this point, it's already gone, but that's something that I'm really focused on. I love helping people, uh, grow their business. And and in some cases start their business. I know for me, when I got started, I could have shortcut my learning a lot by surrounding myself with the right people. And I didn't do that early on for two reasons. Number one, I was stubborn. I thought I could figure it out myself. And number two, I'm, I'm an introvert by nature. So I like doing for people what being around the right folks did for me and, and helping people grow their businesses and sharing some of the stuff that we talked about today. Like, how do you scale? Like, what do you do to scale your company? I like helping people with that stuff. So that's a big focus for me the rest of this year and going forward. And then this is like a little bit off the beaten path or maybe it's a little bit off subject, but I, just this year I started, I, um, uh, like a, a lending company, a private mm-hmm. hard money lending company. So I'm starting to get into that world, which is, it's fun because I just got done saying I like to build things and it makes me feel good because my company is sort of running. It doesn't need me day to day. And so I get bored and I need to do something. And and this is a good like vertical integration. I, I know a lot of folks who need money. And so I just, I've created a company to kind of help people build their businesses, help them lend the money they need to, to start those flips or buy those properties. And that's a whole different arena for me. I've borrowed money from a lot of people. I've borrowed millions and millions and millions of dollars, but now being on the other side as a lender, it's a whole different ball game, but I'm enjoying it. I like it. I like underwriting people's properties and, you know, making sure it's a good deal because I think honestly lenders help new investors stay out of trouble. If I, if they, if you can't borrow the money hopefully. from anybody, <laughs> hopefully because of no one will underwrite your deal, that might be a bad deal. You might want to take another look at it. Right, right. Awesome. Well, love it, man. Look, at the end of every show, we love to get into the top five investing tips. They're five lightning round questions. You ready to dive into it? Let's do it, man. Let's Mate, do it. what is it that your daily habit that you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Daily habit I keep, I, I, so man, I'm going to really show my age. I have a whiteboard in my office. Love it. I keep the most important top of mind things that I absolutely have to get done on my whiteboard because I see it every time I walk in. Electronics can be left behind. Notebooks can be left behind, whatever. That that whiteboard's always in my face. And so I write stuff on a whiteboard that I know I have to get done. Love it, love it. I think writing, the art of writing it down, and for me, you say it being old school, I've got my notepad here and I, I, I burn through these. I've got like 50 of them. I, uh, and I the, the thing with me is, like today, you can't really see it on the screen, but Monday, I've already crossed out four, five major things I need to get done today. And the art of crossing it out is just so important in my mind. But also with the whiteboard, it's the writing it down. It's getting out of your head. It's giving some clarity in your mind, getting the junk out of your head so you can think about, okay, what have we now got to go do to accomplish those five things that is written down? So love it, love it. Question number two is, who's the most influential person in your career to date? Uh, most influential person in my career has been, he's a guy, his name's Andy, Andy McFarland. He, he actually 
took the most time and gave me the most valuable information that I needed at the time I needed it about five years ago. So if you look at my company's growth trajectory, it sort of was slow and steady until like 2015. And then it skyrocketed, right? That's the whole basis of my book. How did I do it in a year? Well, I met a guy named Andy and through what he told me and my own hard work, like I turned everything around and it became a highly profitable, very large business, like fast because of him. And I, I give him the credit. Awesome. Love it. Question number three is, what is the most influential tool in your business on a daily basis? When I say tool, it could be a physical tool like a, uh, like a phone or, or your whiteboard, or it could be a, a piece of software that you use that you cannot run the business without. What is it? All right. I'll give you two because one of them is unavailable to everybody. So uh, this piece of software I have, I created it. It's an app that I created this year. Um, and it was born from my frustration of not having a good Pro, uh, project management slash to-do list that I could find any other app. Everyone I used, I never, never worked for me. And so I designed my own from the ground up and had it developed and made it's, it's in beta. I, I, nobody can get it right now anyway, but I use that. I love it. It's changed my life. Um, hopefully it'll be available soon. I'll come back on and talk about it. Maybe um, aside from that, probably the most, the biggest difference for me is my whiteboard. I know again, it sounds so horrible and lame, but having a whiteboard up for me, I use it so actively throughout the day that it, it, like you said, I'm writing it down and it's big. I don't write small on a whiteboard. Like I have <laughs> two huge whiteboards and I write in like five inch letters because I want it to like scream at me. And, and I'm a, listen, I'm a, I'm a distractible guy. I'm an entrepreneur. I got a million things happening. I need something to really scream at me throughout the day. So that's my way. And it's one of those things when you have a whiteboard and then you're walking in out of your office, it's subconsciously there. You can see it, yep. you wrote it down. And I, I truly love it. I think it's, it's, it's quite, that tool is very influential for those people out there. Don't have a whiteboard, get one and put it in yeah. your office, put your goals in there, put something, but, but get it out of the mind, get it onto paper or onto the, the whiteboard. So awesome stuff. Uh, question number four, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? And what did you learn from that failure? The biggest failure in my career, um, it's a great question. Probably the biggest failure in my career was expecting everyone to know what I wanted without properly training them. I, I really screwed yep. that up hard. And I, there's a lot of opportunity costs that got left on the table and a lot of people that probably didn't need to be let go because I had bad expectations because I expect them to read my mind and that was mm. horrible. Mm. I remember one time, my first ever virtual assistant, uh, $4 from India um, and he stuffed up a few things and it's actually the reflection of not his ability, yeah. but my ability to explain it. And as yeah. soon as I made, and I spent longer writing an email, like that sort of what you talked about earlier about, I'll just do it myself. It's going to take me 20 minutes to write these email screenshots and, and that's where I found Loom and that's where I got quicker. But after doing it so uh, with so much detail, he's then, it's been created an asset for my business because I can always come back to him and say, remember that thing you did? Yeah, well, I've now documented it in one email and you know how to do it really well. And so I'm going to keep asking you to do it again and again and again. But it was boiled down to my lack of clarity and lack of him understanding what I wanted through the explanation. That's why he failed. It wasn't got anything to do with him as a person. It was me explaining it to him. So it was really my failure. So I think yeah. it's, it's really important being self-aware of that um, in any growth of any business when you are trying to delegate and give out tasks because it's a reflection yeah. of how well you communicate. 100%. Mate, <laughs> uh, last question. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? 
Um, probably two places really easy. First of all, just start real estate. You mentioned that at the beginning, you can, you can email me a Mike at just start real estate, or you can just go to MikeSimmons.com to see everything I'm a part of. And then, uh, you know, just as like a, a gift for getting all the way to the end of this episode and listening to me drone on, uh, I did write a book and I can, you can go to Amazon and pick it up. It's called level jumping, but if you want to get a digital version of it, download it for free. Um, I can make it easy for you. Just text the words, just start to the number five, five, four, four, four. So it's two words though. Just start five, five, four, four, four. And I'll get you a free digital download of the, in the entire book. Love it, mate. Love it. Look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. I just want to reflect a few things I took away from today's show. I think first and foremost, what stood out to me is your ability, even as a, maybe what some people would think a later in life entrepreneur, but you still went out and did it when you had two, you know, you had two kids, you went back to school, you got into, you got more, a bigger degree, you were able to get more money. And then through that, you're able to push yourself to get out there and take action. It took a little while, but like all of us, you eventually did it. And that's the most important thing. So I bet you're sitting here today, looking back saying, I'm glad I took a better myself and I'm glad I went out and gave it a crack. I think that was the biggest thing that stood out for me. I think I also love the fact that you've really understood what you're good at in your skill set and then delegate really quickly for those things that you aren't good at. But having the metrics in place to keep um, performance indicators that you can quickly check to make sure that the trains are on, uh, the wheels are on the train and you're on the track. But so you then have time to go off and build other things like your lending company. So I think it's uh, really, really awesome. Did it leave anything out? No, that's it, man. Awesome Everyone can stuff. do it. Listen, I'm, I'm not special. Most of us aren't, right? We just... Right executions, everything. So get out there and do it. Don't, don't wait around. Don't do what I did. Don't spend five years, you know, kind of sitting on the sidelines, get out there and go. Awesome, buddy. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. All right, man. Thank you. Good day. Okay. Well, there you have another cracking episode, Jam Pack. Some incredible stuff from Mike. Remember, go to MikeSimmons.com to check out everything that he mentioned on today's show. Um, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about on the, here on this show. And if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a like and a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you podcast. And we're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Crack.